Um, we're in the middle of the series on relatively speaking, on our relationships and our relatives and things of that sort. And uh, so we looked at how the kingdom, uh, having a kingdom perspective on things, uh, changes our, our understanding of what it is to honor our mother and father and what it is to uh, be single. And we've seen how it changes our understanding of, of courtship, as we saw last week. So this morning we're going to talk about marriage. In fact, this week and next week we'll be talking about marriage. Next week we'll also be talking about marriage and divorce. This was supposed to be one message, and it just sort of grew into two, so the series is going to be a little bit longer. Um, and uh, this is one that I, you know, sometimes I have messages that are more motivational or kind of address more of the heart. And then there's messages that are more along the lines of teaching and content-driven. This message is going to be uh, on that, because I'm setting up a paradigm for marriage. Uh, for some, it will be a review, but I think it will be a necessary re- review. For others, it could be uh, completely new. And uh, I have a sense that for some, it could just rock your world and transform your marriage if you let it in on the inside. Uh, because it's a teaching uh, time, I want to encourage you to make a commitment to be attending this. It's going to get uh, you know, require some thinking here uh, in about 10, 15 minutes. The first 10 minutes or so, be light. But then it gets kind of intense. So, so uh, be paying attention. Have your thinking caps on as we come to this. So I'm entitling this message, Reversing the Curse in Marriage. Reversing, now marriage is a curse. I'm just saying it's reversing the curse in marriage. Pray with me here for a moment. Abba, Father, I thank you for every person who is in this auditorium and for every person who is listening through podcast or through some other means. And God, we, we just want to be people who have every aspect of our life brought under your authority and, and uh, reflecting your character. We want to be a people who are doing your will and honoring you in our marriages and in all relationships. And so we pray, Lord, that, that you'd use this message. Uh, whether people are married or not, it's significant because it changes all of our relationships. And so use this message to kingdomize our marriages, to kingdomize all of our relationships. And free us, God, from the, uh, the, the fallen compulsion we sometimes have to control and to rule and to get our way. Free us to have the character of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay, so by way of review, we saw, we've seen the last couple of weeks that in, the, in, the, in first century Judaism, as throughout much of history, um, the father defined the family. And the father had total authority over the family. And the primary allegiance of, of people was to their father and to the family. That was the foundation of, of the social structure in first century Judaism. Your primary allegiance, your most important allegiance, is to your father and to the family. And the job of kids, we've seen, is to live in a way that brings honor to the father and the family, uh, to carry out the father's will, and uh, to expand the family by getting married and having kids. Jesus, we've seen, takes that patriarchal framework where the father rules everything, and he applies it to God and the family of all who do his will. And so Abba, the Aramaic word for dad, when we submit to the Lord, God becomes not just the supreme being, but our dad. There's an intimacy that's there. And, and Abba defines the, the family and has a total authority over the family. And our primary allegiance is to be to Abba and his family. In fact, we, we've seen and we saw in the first message that that allegiance is to have no competitors. 
It's to dwarf in significance every other kind of allegiance we might have. And then our job as kingdom kids is to honor the Father, to live in a way that brings honor to the Father and the family, uh, to carry out the Father's will on earth as it is in heaven, and to expand the family, whether that's by having kids and raising them uh, in the kingdom or adopting kids and raising them to be kingdom people uh, and through evangelism. We're all called to do that by inviting people into the faith and things of that sort where to, where to expand the family. And that framework we've seen changes everything. It changes, as I said before, how we view uh, our, our, our mother and father, how, how we understand what it is to be single, how we understand dating, and it certainly changes how we do, or at least it certainly should change, how we do marriages. So in first century Judaism, as throughout most traditional cultures, not all, but most, the husband had total authority over the wife. In fact, the husband virtually owned the wife. The husband bought the wife from the father who previously owned her. Women were generally considered to be property. So there's this transaction that takes place, and, he, and the husband had total authority over um, that, that property that he owned, his wife. The primary job of women in first century Judaism, as throughout most cultures, was to bear children and to expand the husband's family. The kingdom that Jesus brought completely revolutionizes that, completely transforms it. And to see how it transforms it, I want to zoom out a little bit for about 10 minutes and take a look at a kind of a broader picture of the kingdom and then to see how marriage fits into this. The kingdom that Jesus inaugurated uh, is, is one that when we submit to Abba Father, and we're born from above, as we saw in the first week of this series. And when we're born from above, the Father has total authority over us. Uh, we're to be completely defined, completely defined by our relationship to Abba Father and by our participation in the family. And our allegiance is to be totally to Abba Father and to his family, which means we're not to be defined by anything else and we're not to have any significant allegiance to anything else, certainly not any allegiance that would ever compete with our allegiance to the kingdom of God. Now, see, that this contrasts with what we find in the world, in the fallen world, in the world outside of Christ, the world before Christ and the world outside of Christ. Um, people are defined by a lot of different things, and therefore people have allegiance to a lot of different things. Whatever defines you, whatever, whatever, whatever you think it, you know, comprises you, your, your core identity, you're going to have an allegiance to. You'll have a, you find significance in that. And in the world outside of Christ and before Christ, people have a lot of different things that define them, and therefore they have a lot of different competing allegiances. So, for example, a person may, uh, their identity may be found in their nationality. I'm Japanese, or I'm Irish. That's, that's how they identify themselves. And so their allegiance is going to be to Japan or to Ireland. And therefore, if uh, anyone slanders or threatens Japan or Ireland, uh, people, these folks will get, get irate and, and, and will be threatened and, and maybe get hostile because whatever you have an allegiance to, if it gets threatened, you get hostile. You, you, you get uh, aggravated. Uh, if a, a person's allegiance is to their gender, I'm male. If that's kind of how they see themselves, then their allegiance is going to be to that gender. They'll have some commitment to protecting that gender. And so if anyone threatens their masculinity or if anyone... Uh, undermines their authority as a male, they're going to they're gonna be irate. They're, they're going to be upset. It's one of the reasons why the world before Christ and the world outside of Christ is a hostile world. And why violence has been pervasive throughout human history. It's because we have all these allegiances and they, they clash with one another. Uh, almost all the violence in history is the result 
of, of uh, allegiances coming into conflict with one another. Bam. When something that's precious to me is threatened by you, because something that's precious to you is threatened by what's precious to me, there's conflict. And that's the hostility of the fallen world. The kingdom that Jesus inaugurates does away with all of those identities and all of those allegiances. The kingdom that Jesus inaugurates does away with all those identities and all of the allegiances that comprise the fallen world because we're completely defined. Our core identity is completely found in our relationship with Abba that we're born from above. And our allegiance is completely focused on Abba and his family. That means that we're no longer to invest any significance in all of these other identities or to have any of these other allegiances. Uh, in the kingdom, our nationality or our social status or our race uh, should, should, should make no difference. Our gender, uh, our achievements, all the things that people grab onto to comprise their core identity and all the things that people uh, find significant and pledge their allegiance to in the kingdom are done away with. So I'm up here talking to you and I'm an American. I'm an American. But if I'm thinking like a kingdom person, then I, I don't, that doesn't comprise my core identity and so it doesn't, it doesn't have a significant allegiance in my life. And so if someone slanders or threatens America, I'm not going to get irate because it's not my core identity or my allegiance. And I'm up here talking to you, and I'm a man. You may have noticed that. I'm a male. In fact, I'm 100% pure hunk male, all right? That wasn't funny. That was true. All right, so I'm a male, but see, if I'm thinking as a kingdom person, that's not going to comprise my core identity, and so it's not going to have a, a, a huge allegiance in my life. So if you threaten my masculinity or try to take away my authority as a man, I'm not going to get that irate. It doesn't comprise my core identity. It's not, it's not the essence of who I am. When a person derives their whole identity, their sense of worth, security, and purpose, when it's all found in Abba, and, and when Abba and, and his purposes are, have, have our, our complete allegiance, then nothing else really matters. Nothing else really matters. In the kingdom, there's simply nothing very significant about your nationality or about your gender or about your race. In the kingdom, there's nothing significant about your social status or the things that you've achieved. In the kingdom, it, it, those things just don't amount to much because our allegiance is to Abba and, and to his family. It doesn't matter whether you're American or French or Iraqi or Afghanistan or Japanese. It doesn't matter whether you're a male or female. You're a kingdom person. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white. It doesn't matter whether what your political views may be. It doesn't matter whether you're a socialist or, or, or a capitalist. It doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican. You're a kingdom person, and that's all that matters. In the kingdom, all that matters is that you've been born from above. You've got the Spirit of God in you. In the kingdom, all that matters is that, that you, you know and have accepted that you're loved with an everlasting love by Abba Father. In the kingdom, all that matters is that you know that you're in Christ Jesus and you've got an eternal inheritance and you're seated with Christ in heavenly places and you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. If you know that, what else does it matter? What else does anything else matter? That's your, our, to be our core identity. That's where our allegiance is to be found. See, and that's why in the New Testament you find a lot of statements that sound rather crazy. Because this is, if, if, if you get a hold of this and internalize it, man, it, 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 it revamps everything. So you find statements like this. Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. That's the family, Abba, Father. And you're children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, because you're clothed with Christ. There's neither slave nor free, because you're clothed with Christ. 
There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. I love this. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I love that passage. See, in Christ, we're all children of God. We're all Abraham's seed. We're all descendants of Abraham because Abraham is the father of all who believe. This is the family. So it's Father Abraham. Had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And if you're a believer, you're in it. That's Abba's family. Um, and, and the way that, that uh, we're initiated into the family, according to the New Testament, is through baptism. We align ourselves with the corporate bride of Christ through the ceremony of baptism. That's our wedding ceremony. And so Paul says, if you've been baptized, if you've been immersed uh, in Christ, then, then you're clothed with Christ. Uh, the imagery is this. When a person goes down into the water, uh, they're, they're enveloped in the water. They're submerged in the water. The, the word for baptism, baptizo, means to immerse. So a person's immersed in the water, and they're, they're enveloped in it. In the same way, when, when we are incorporated into Christ and the body of Christ, uh, we're immersed into Christ Jesus. We put on Christ Jesus. We wear Christ Jesus. And while you come up out of the water, you never come up out of Christ Jesus. You're clothed in Christ Jesus. And see, if you're clothed in Christ, everything else about you is concealed. It's, uh, it, it's insignificant. It's no longer seen. Oh, the only thing that matters is that you're wearing this family garment which is Christ Jesus. Right now, I, I've got certain scars on my body. Oh, you know, I've had little growths taken out. But see, that's insignificant because you can't see them. Why? Because I'm wearing clothes. Thank God for that. I'm wearing clothes. Uh, and, and so all the little things on my body are, you know, are unimportant. You, you, no one thinks about that or sees that uh, because you're wearing clothes. So also, when you put on the garment of Christ Jesus, everything else about you is concealed. It, just, it becomes insignificant. Male nor female, nothing. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter at all. Nationality, ethnicity, things you've achieved or what you haven't achieved or things you've done right or things that you've done wrong or, or, or what social class you belong to, all of that is utterly insignificant. Why? Because you're wearing the clothing of Christ Jesus. There's neither male nor female. Those, those things are just completely... Uh, rendered insignificant in the kingdom. The world invests so much into that. There's allegiances pledged to that. There's identities in that. But in Christ, our only identity is Christ Jesus. And our only allegiance is to Abba, Father, and his family. And everything else is rendered uh, insignificant. Check out this one. This is even crazier. From now on, Paul says, those who are married should live as though they were not. Did you ever notice this passage? It's, It's wild. Now, Paul had said just about 10 verses earlier that a husband and wife shouldn't abstain from sex for too long because the devil might tempt them. So whatever he means by that statement, he's not saying don't have sex, thankfully. Uh, Those who are married should live as though they were not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Isn't this crazy? Those who buy something as though it were not theirs to keep. Not allowed to own anything, really. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. Now follow this. The present form of this world is the world with all these competing allegiances because people have all these competing identities. That, 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 the form of all those false identities and false allegiances, that's the present form of this world, and it's passing away. A new thing has come. It's the kingdom revolution. The old is passing away. And see, we as kingdom people, if you're submitted to Christ Jesus, you're a kingdom person, you're part of the family, and you're to live, we're to live now what will be true later on. That's why the Bible calls us first fruits of a coming harvest. We're to put on display now what will be true of the entire cosmos later on. So if the old form of the world is passing away, we're to live as though it already has passed away. Put on display a kingdom that's free of all these false identities and false allegiances. 
So Paul is saying, if you're a member of Abba's family, uh, you're not to invest any significance. Don't get your life from, don't get your identity from, don't put any allegiance, don't put any allegiance to whether you're married or whether you're single. It's no big deal. Uh, don't, don't invest any significance on whether you're in fortunate circumstances and therefore are happy, or right now you're in unfortunate circumstances and are unhappy. Yeah, it's just the way it goes. Don't invest anything in that. No, you're a kingdom person. Uh, if you buy something, well, then don't own it. It's going to pass away, so, so act as though it's really not yours. And if you use something, well, then use it, but don't, but don't get engrossed in it. It's part of the old world that's passing away. You're a kingdom person. You belong to Abba and his family, and nothing else really matters. And see, folks, this is the essence of the kingdom revolution right here. This is the essence of it. It's this wild, wild, crazy world in which all of the allegiances and all the identities of the old world are done away with. And we're to live as a people uh, for whom the only thing that matters is that you're in Christ. The only thing that matters is that God is Abba Father. The only thing that matters is that you've been born above. And everything else is rendered utterly, utterly insignificant. And with that in mind, now let's take another look at marriages. Marriages in the first century, first century Judaism. Uh, they invested, being, being a man meant a lot. No one lived with this idea that there's no male or female. No, being a, there's a great difference there. And there's a whole lot of significance, a whole lot of identity wrapped up in being a man, and a whole lot of allegiance wrapped up in being a man. Why? Because if you're a man, you, you have all the power. If you're a man, you own your wife. A lot of significance there. You ruled. That is part, that paradigm, that patriarchal paradigm, is part of the old world that is passing away. And so it's part of what we're to uh, live as though it already had passed away. That way of doing marriage with this hierarchical system, uh, is part of the fall. It's part of the fall. And you can see that if you go back to Genesis 3. After the rebellion of Adam and Eve, Yahweh shows up. And to the woman, he says this. Uh, now you're going to have to start really attending this, okay? Now it's going to start getting thick. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I didn't hear a single amen on that one. <laughs> Which is good, because we shouldn't be saying amen to that. You see, the, uh, the way that's often interpreted, in fact, usually interpreted, is as a prescription for marriage. People quote this verse and say, okay, man's supposed to rule. Um, and so they take it as a command, as a prescription for marriage, when in fact, in the Hebrew, it's not a command at all. It's not an imperative. This isn't, this isn't uh, a, a, a prescription for how God wants marriages to be. This is a description of how marriages are, in fact, going to be, even though God doesn't want it. This is a woeful declaration. God is saying, because of this fall, because of the fall, because of this rebellion, your desire is going to be to your husband, and he's going to rule over you. Now, the word rule in this context uh, has the connotation of subduing, to subdue, to conquer. He's going to conquer. And the word desire, teshuka in Hebrew here, uh, well, it's used in the next chapter, uh, Genesis 4, 7, uh, of Cain. And the Lord says to Cain that sin is crouching at the door and it desires you. So the word desire means to capture or to manipulate, to control. And so what the Lord is saying here is that because, because people are now alienated from God and, and are, are under now the, the oppression of the enemy, because of the, the spiritual pollution of this world, this beautiful thing that he had in mind for marriage is going to be reduced to a power struggle. Where the man, because they tend to be stronger, are going to end up winning, they're going to rule, they're going to tyrannize. Uh, but the woman now, because uh, they tend to be weak, physically weaker, she's going to have to rely on her brains. 
And she's going to desire to manipulate. And so she's trying to manipulate, and the man is using his strength to conquer and rule. And there's nothing beautiful about that at all. There's nothing prescriptive about, about that at all. This is a woeful, sad thing that is the result of the fall. But it has characterized marriages throughout history, at least most of the time. It goes back to that clip we saw earlier, where the man's the head, and the woman positions herself as the neck trying to turn the head, often trying to do it in a way where the head doesn't know that it's being turned, in fact, usually. It only works, actually, if the, if the head forgets that it's attached to a neck, then the neck can turn it any way. Oh, yeah, honey, you're the boss of the family. Now go do this. Right. <laughs> and that is sadly the way it has been throughout most of history. That's part of the fall. That's part of the old world that's passing away. Now the kingdom comes, right? Jesus brings this kingdom, which all of the uh, identities and allegiances have been done away with. And it changes everything. It changes everything. Rather than being involved in power struggles in the kingdom... Here's what Paul says in Philippians 2. In the kingdom, all of our relationships are to look like this. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. The power struggle is all predicated on selfish ambition. Everybody wants to have their way. Whether you do it by strength or just through manipulation, by power or by your intelligence, we're trying to get our way. That's selfish ambition. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships, note that it's not qualified at all. In all of your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind that Jesus Christ had. And then Paul goes on to to tell us about the attitude that Jesus Christ had. Though he was divine, though he was God, though he had all the power, though he had all the privilege, he set it aside it says in Philippians 2, he emptied himself, kenosis in Greek, divested himself of all that power, all that privilege to become a human being, to become a servant of humanity, and to ultimately give his life for us to redeem us. That's the attitude that Christ had, and that's the attitude we're to have in all of our relationships. All relationships between men and women, all relationships between men and men and women and women, all relationships are to be characterized by this Christ-like humility, this servant mindset And therefore, marriages, which are a relationship, are to be characterized by this kingdom humility and by this servant attitude, free of selfish ambition. And see, that model blows sky high the paradigm of marriage in the old world, the paradigm of marriage that's the result of the fall, the cursed paradigm of marriage, which is a power struggle for for, uh, each person to uh, have their selfish ambition and to control the other. Because now you see in the kingdom, instead of husbands and wives trying to, out of their selfish ambition, get the upper hand and control one another, now husbands and wives are to be seeking the interest of the other person. They're to be valuing the other person above themselves. They're to have the mindset of Christ coming under the person and and, and holding up the person and serving the person. That is marriage in the kingdom. It looks very, very different from marriage uh, under the fall as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion. Paul says this explicitly in Ephesians 5. That's going to get a little thicker. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul's talking to husbands and wives. And he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because you're a kingdom person, because you revere Christ, because you want to imitate Christ, he's saying, have the same attitude that Christ had. 
which means you submit to one another. The way Christ divested himself of power and became a human being, that's what a husband and a wife should be doing in marriage. Now, the, the, the word for submit here uh, is hupotasso, and it means to place yourself under or to be subject to. Now, it doesn't mean, it does not mean to enable a person to go on in their dysfunction. It does not mean, submission does not mean you allow someone to walk all over you. Submission does not mean you allow someone to uh, abuse you. Submission does not mean, hupotasso does not mean that, that we're supposed to have these little mousy attitude and, and, and just let someone trounce on us. No, see, our model in everything is Jesus Christ. He says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. So let's look at Christ. Jesus, when it was loving to do so, he, he gave his life. He sacrificed. He suffered. He was willing to do that when it was loving to do so. But when it was loving to do so, he was very confrontational. When he's talking to the Sadducees and Pharisees, he doesn't look very mousy. When he's talking to the Sadducees and Pharisees and other religious leaders, he gets big. He gets loud. He calls them vipers. He uses shock words to try to wake them up. Blind leaders of the blind. And see, the reason is because it wasn't loving to just let them go on doing what they're doing. Uh, it wasn't loving to let them go on in their deception and their self-righteousness and then leading other, people's, other people into that bondage. No, out of love for them, he still had a love for them. He still was coming under them because he's operating out of their interests. But uh, out of love for them and love for the people, he's got to confront. Sometimes love is, is, is self-sacrificial and bleeds, but sometimes love has got to confront. Uh, and, and so in relationships... I'm thinking primarily of women here, though sometimes it applies to men. But it, it, it's not godly or, or it's not submissive in a Christ-like sense to let someone abuse you, to let someone tyrannize over you or rule you, to stand with that old paradigm where someone's using the power of their voice or, or, or the power of their fist to keep you in, in this ungodly kind of submission. It's not Christ-like to let that go on. You're not showing love for your husband by letting him go on in this dysfunctional way as though that was appropriate. You're not loving yourself. And if there's kids involved, you're not loving them by allowing this to go on. You've got to confront. And if that doesn't work, you bring other people and you confront. And sometimes, sometimes the only loving thing to do is to walk away. Because that's maybe the only way that this, the other person is going to get it. Uh, submission does not mean you let someone tyrannize over you. Now, every situation is different. And so if you're in a relationship that is, that is in some way abusive... You need to pray to get God's discernment. You need to get other people involved and, and have them discern to ask the question, what does loving submission look like in this situation? Because everyone's a little bit different. Having said that, I want to say that I couldn't possibly, I could not possibly exaggerate how radical and shocking it is that Paul, a first century Jewish male, in a first century Jewish context, tells husbands to submit. Husbands and wives. Wives and husbands submit to one another. That is, in this patriarchal framework, see, that is, you're, you're, you're undermining, from a from first century Jewish perspective, you're undermining the, the authority of the father and everything hangs on this. You're undermining the authority of the male and everything hangs on this. This is subversive talk here. This is revolutionary talk. It's, it's wild to say wives... And husbands have the same attitude that Christ had. Wives and husbands put away all selfish ambition. Wives and husbands value the other person above yourself. Wives and husbands 
Put the interest of the other person ahead of your own. Wives and husbands, love one another. Submit to one another. Sacrifice for one another. That is wild in a first century context. This is absolutely challenges all those false identities and all that false allegiance. It may be that right now there's a, there, there could be a man listening to this, either in the auditorium or on podcast, who's beginning to get irritated at me. Maybe wants to beat me up. Because it, it may be that I'm, I'm challenging uh, part of your identity and part of your allegiance. And if you're a kingdom person, I just encourage you not to beat me up, but to rather consider the possibility that, that maybe you're hanging on to an identity and allegiance you ain't supposed to have. Because all your identity is supposed to be found in Christ. So can you see how, 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 how the kingdom model for marriage, just being Christian to one another, completely blows apart the fallen Adam paradigm of marriage? The manipulation and the rule are destroyed when people are Christ-like to one another in a marriage. Uh, it, it completely reverses the curse. So Dan, show us a picture of uh, uh, what the curse looks like. Here's marriages under the curse. You see the guy, he's trying to have authority that the arrows represent attempts to have, a, have, have control. He's trying to control the wife, and the wife tries to control the man, then he tries to control the wife, and the wife tries to control the man. It's Genesis 3.16. And historically, because most have relied on brute power, uh, the man has had the upper hand and conquers, but then the wife has to resort to her ingenuity to try to get her way. It's all predicated on selfish ambition. And this is marriages under the curse. But when kingdom people commit to being uh, Christ-like to one another, it looks like this. You see, the husband comes under the wife, and the wife then comes under the husband, and the husband then, you know, it's hupotasso. It's service. How can I serve you? Well, how can I serve you? How can I love you? Well, how can I love you? And now they're moving in the exact opposite direction. Completely reverses the curse of tyranny and manipulation. Reverses the curse of pursuing things out of selfish ambition. Reverses the curse of being addicted to trying to get your own way. No, no, as, as uh, in the kingdom... It's about a brother and sister in Christ because remember, we're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ even before we're spouses. You're a brother and sister in Christ and, and the goal is to put on display in your marriage what it looks like to be in a radical kingdom where all of these other ways of having identities and allegiances have been completely done away. Where there's no male or female and so there's no power struggle based on that. There's no allegiance to that. There's no identity in that. No, it's just two people under Abba Father who want to reflect the Father's character to one another, and that is manifested in Christ. Have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had when he put aside his authority and power and became a human being and died on the cross. Okay, now it's going to get even a little thicker. The plot thickens. So follow me. Keep your thinking caps on. This is the ideal for kingdom marriages. This is what it looks like for, for marriages to completely be exemplifying uh, kingdom principles, which are always rooted in Calvary, living a cross-like kind of way of life. But the kingdom always comes to people as they are, and the kingdom always comes to cultures as they are. Where else can it come? It's got to meet people where they're at and meet cultures where they're at. See, the kingdom, Jesus said, is like a mustard seed that gets planted. Little tiny mustard seed gets planted in a life and gets planted in the culture and slowly grows and takes over the whole garden. The kingdom is growing. But you can't change people and you can't change cultures overnight. It takes time. And so it, 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 for, the, for, the, for the, the kingdom to come, it has to first come in the categories of the culture. It has to first confront the way people think. It ha- the kingdom has to first adopt itself to what is already there. And then it grows from there and begins to transform people and it begins to subvert all fallen aspects of the culture. And so Paul 
in Ephesians 5 has to adapt the language of the culture in order to communicate to kingdom people how the kingdom is different from the culture. You follow me on this? You follow me on this? Someone shake your head. All right, oh, good. I was getting worried up here. All right. No, to see that. Okay, I'll really follow this. To see that, let's go back to Ephesians 5 because the discussion continues. Probably someone out there was saying, oh, why didn't you read the rest of the chapter? That's what, yeah, submit to one another, but look at the rest of it. Well, but now we're going to look at the rest of the chapter. Uh, uh, go back to the passage where he says, submit to one another. And look what Paul does as, as he continues this. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Men and women, husbands and wives, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, he says, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, on, on the screen here, I put uh, submit yourselves after wives in brackets. And the reason I put it in brackets is because it's not there in the original Greek. The original Greek simply has husbands and wives submit to one another, wives to your husbands. And the reason that's important is because uh, what it shows is that, that this, the phrase why uh, uh, husbands and wives submit to one another, that's sort of the caption of what's going to follow. And now Paul's going to tell the husband and the wife what submission looks like. Because it looks different because they're in different positions because the cultures put them there. So he's saying husbands and wives submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Wives, here's how you do it. And then he's going to turn around and go, husbands, here's how you do it. But they're both forms of submission. Some people take, think that Paul repeated submission in verse, 23, or verse 22 there because only wives are supposed to submit. But he just said both are supposed to submit. Okay, now let's go on. This, this gets really cool. For the husband, he says, is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I thought I'd get one husband saying amen there. See, if you take this verse out of context, which is usually how it's taken, if you take it out of context, well, it looks like, like Paul is... is, is uh, um, you know, saying the husband's the boss. Huh? Take it out of context, it looks like he's, saying, oh, he's repeating the first century maxim that husbands are, are in charge. And the wife's job is to submit. If you take it out of context, you've got to be wondering, well, Paul, wait a minute, what about two verses earlier when you said submit to one another? If you take it out of context, you've got to be wondering, Paul, what about all that Philippians 2 stuff? What about, you know, we're all supposed to have the mind of Christ, and we're all supposed to uh, value the other above ourselves, and we're all supposed to put aside selfish ambition. You know, what about all that? It looks like Paul's maybe reversing that and all of a sudden going back to the patriarchal first century model. But in fact, he's not. He's not. He's so not. He's being ingenious the way he's planning the mustard seed of the kingdom in the, in, in, the, in the categories of the culture. Look what he does when he goes on here. Keep on reading. He says this. Husbands, now it's your turn. Submit to one another. Wives, here's what it looks like for you to do it. Husbands, here's what it looks like for you to do it. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So right after telling wives to submit, Paul turns around and tells the husband, who in the first century owns all the power, he says, he says now you love your wife as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He gave himself for her. He sacrificed himself for her. This is the ultimate hupotasso. He's saying to the husband, since you have all the power, you've got to initiate this because the wife is already doing it. You lay down your life for your wife. Sacrifice everything. This is the ultimate coming under. Everything you are should be devoted to coming under her. 
and, 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 and sacrificing for her. The opposite of selfish ambition. And notice, men, no, I'm talking to guys here. Notice that Christ loved the church that way when the church was still unholy. He made her holy and cleansed her by sacrificing himself. So husbands, if we're to love like Christ loves, we don't get to wait till we think they deserve it. <laughs> Christ loved the church when we were unholy and, and dirty because he wanted to make us holy and clean. So, so even if you're, you think your wife does not deserve this kind of sacrifice, even if she, you think she's being nagging or manipulative or whatever it is, your job is to bleed for her, to lay down your life for her. And um, now I'm quite sure there's a guy who's probably getting angry at me and wants to beat me up. Can I get a bodyguard after the service? You see what Paul's doing here? It's just ingenious. See, women are already submitting to, to their husbands. That's what you do in the first century. They don't have a choice about it. They're already esteeming their husband's uh, interests above their own. They had no choice. Paul's not saying anything new to them when he says submit. That, that's, that's the obvious thing. What is, what's new, what's radical, what's revolutionary is how they submit. No, instead of doing it just because you have to, no, do it out of reverence for Christ. Do it, do it uh, as unto the Lord the way that the church does to Christ. Uh, do it in a way that's not manipulative. You, you have to set aside your selfish ambition and, and, and now come under uh, volitionally out of love for your husband. He bring it to, he's bringing the kingdom to this submission. And then to the husband, he says, uh, he's not saying anything new when he says you're the head of the, the wife. Everyone knew that. The husbands were boss. That's not new. That's not kingdom. There's nothing distinctly kingdom about that. What is distinctly kingdom is what he tells them to do with that power. Husbands, you have all the power. What are you going to do with it? What Paul is saying is, don't do what Adam did. Don't do what most husbands throughout history have done, where you use the power that the culture gives you because of, you tend to have superior strength. Don't use that power to, for your own purposes, for your own selfish ambition, to get your way. No. Here's what you do with that power. You do what Christ did. What did Christ do with power? He set it aside. He set it aside. He became a servant and he bled. That's kingdom. That's the essence of kingdom. And now you see, kingdom marriages are to look so, so very different from the fallen paradigm of Genesis 3.16. It's coming under one another. It's serving one another. It's loving one another. So right now, I want to do a little exercise. I've got a little, little bit of time here. Uh, if, if, it closes your, if it helps you to close your eyes, you can close your eyes. You don't have to. I, I, but I want you to ask the Holy Spirit here. Whether you're married or single, it doesn't matter. It applies to all relationships. I'll be speaking specifically to the married couples, but, but you can apply this to any relationship. Will you ask right now the Holy Spirit to maybe show you ways in which you try to get your way in relationships? How do you get your way? Holy Spirit, reveal to us. Are there ways that we try to get the upper hand? Holy Spirit, reveal to us the truth. This is the spirit of truth. Maybe it's through a loud voice that intimidates. Or maybe it's by acting like a victim and crying. That's how you get your way. Maybe it's by refusing to talk. Maybe it's by controlling money. Are there any ways, Holy Spirit revealed to us, in which we're manipulative, conniving, controlling, pursuing our own selfish ambition in our relationships, in our marriages, maybe in friendships, maybe in employment relationships? Holy Spirit revealed to us the truth. And when you see something that 
you know is not of God, that does not look like Jesus Christ setting aside power to serve, when you see that, will you just repent of it? Which means you turn from it. Commit to saying, I, I, I'm going to turn from that behavior and that mindset. Repent. And ask God to empower you to now see what that relationship looks like when you're serving, when you're Christ-like, when you're setting aside selfish ambition. What does it look like? Holy Spirit, reveal that to us. For some, it may be paying attention to what your spouse needs and how they understand love and communicating that to them, whether it's gifts or service. For others, Holy Spirit just revealed to us what's true. It may look confrontational because you've been letting crap go on for way too long. But you do it out of love. You have love for the other person. Reveal to us, Holy Spirit, what is true. And then see it. See, see, see the areas of our life where we're operating out of the old world paradigm. And then just turn from it and commit to moving in a different direction. And then we ask, Holy Spirit, empower us to live that way. Empower us to live that way. Maybe the Holy Spirit will reveal to you why you engage in that behavior. I assure you, I guarantee you, that where you have controlling, manipulative, hostile behavior is because you are hanging on to a false identity at some level, and you have a false allegiance. And if the Holy Spirit reveals that to you, you just let it go, let it go. And say, my whole identity is, is, is who I am in Christ. Who I am because I've been born from above. And my whole allegiance is to Abba and his family. You know, I, I, just in closing, I had uh, initially thought I would give, uh, in this message, like five principles on how to build a good marriage and, and six principles on how to handle conflict. And, and that would be a very good message, and, and we need to do that at some point. That will be helpful. And we're going to talk about uh, marriage and divorce and remarriage next week, so there's, there's more of that coming. But the truth is this. The reality is this. If, if husbands and wives just did this, I guarantee you, you'd be moving towards a healthy marriage. Husbands and wives just committed to living like this, having the mind of Christ. I guarantee you that you'd be moving in the direction of having a beautiful marriage. And I'm not saying it would come overnight, but you'd be moving in the right direction. If husbands and wives would commit to esteeming the other person above themselves, valuing the other person above themselves, putting the interests of the other person, the spouse, uh, before their own interests, I guarantee you you'd be moving in a, in a, in a beautiful direction. And, and when it comes to conflict, conflict is inevitable in this fallen world, but... but uh, I guarantee you that if you, if, we, if you commit to just being Christian to one another, because that's what we're saying, uh, that would be the most practical thing in the world. Now conflicts would be handled in productive ways rather than in destructive ways. When you, when you approach conflict, not out of a selfish ambition to win, but you approach conflict uh, just to ask, how can I ascribe unsurpassable worth to my spouse? How can I serve? How can I bleed? How can I submit? Those, those conflicts will be resolved in productive ways. The thing that undermines healthy marriages... And the thing that makes sometimes conflicts seem absolutely insurmountable is that we are operating under that old, cursed paradigm. To some degree, we're still operating in the flesh. And we, if we can repent of that and set that aside and manifest the kingdom, which male and female doesn't mean anything. Uh, you know, who, who's smarter, who, who's not so smart doesn't mean anything. Who, 
who's good at this or who's good at that doesn't mean anything. No, when we set aside all this false identity and all those false allegiances, well, now, now we're in a position where we can, in our marriages and in all of our relationships, manifest the character of our Abba Father. And folks, that is what it's all about. Manifesting the beautiful kingdom, the beautiful radical kingdom that subverts the world. And we live as though all those things have passed away because we're free of them when our identity is in Christ. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Hey, I, I, let's do this. Um, I'm going to end in prayer, and I'd like to ask the, the prayer team to come up here. And if you are here and have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, uh, whether it's about your marriage or, or anything else, I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks uh, when the service is done. Could I ask all married people, whether you're here with your spouse or not, would you just stand up? And we want to pray for you. I want to close in prayer for you. Just stand up if you're married. All right, all good. Now, everyone is sitting down, single folks. I want you to look around and pick out a couple of married folks there and pray for them. As I'm praying, you just be focusing on them, all right? And we want to cover these marriages in, 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 in prayer. Okay, so I got it. Pick them out, single folks. So Father, we right now join together and pray for all of the marriages and families represented in this room right here and right now. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd baptize them in the spirit of Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd clothe them in Jesus Christ. We pray that, God, they would relate to each other as people who are clothed in Jesus Christ. We pray that their marriages would be clothed in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord God, that, that all false allegiances and identities would be collapsed in all these marriages. We pray, Lord God, that that spirit of servitude, that that spirit of, of self-sacrifice would invade their marriages. We pray, Lord God, that they'd be a people who forgive quickly, who don't grab onto power, who don't operate out of, out of, of uh, selfish ambition. We pray, Lord God, that they would have a renewed, rekindled love for one another, God. And we pray for protection from the enemy who's always working at cross purposes with our Abba Father. God, we pray protection over these marriages. Keep the evil one out, Lord God, and invade them with your precious, gentle, loving, serving Holy Spirit. That our marriages could be marriages that put on display your character reflected on Calvary. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said... Amen. God bless you guys. The old world's passed away. Go out and live the new one. Amen.